If you would please open your Bibles to John chapter 7. Our passage this morning will be covering John 7 and 8. Almost everybody in our culture celebrates Christmas. Most go to Christmas parties, sometimes to many Christmas parties. We go to our kids' Christmas concerts, we exchange Christmas gifts, and we certainly eat Christmas goodies. Everybody gathers for the feast, so to speak. Everybody keeps the festival in one way or another. But like we said last week, most people have forgotten Jesus in all of the festivities. Christmas is a Christ feast. And while almost everybody keeps the feast, most have missed the Christ. We see something very similar to this in our passage this morning. The setting of John 7 and 8 is a feast. It's the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, as our translation says. And like Christmas is for us today, this was the biggest of the three major feasts for Israel. Chapter 7, verse 8, it's called the Feast. Like Advent, the Feast of Tabernacles did two things simultaneously. It looked backward, but it also looked forward. It looked back to Israel's time in the wilderness after they came out of Egypt and before they entered into the promised land. The people lived in tents or in tabernacles. And so the Feast of Tabernacles, they would gather together and live in tents or in booths as a way to look back to the way that God had provided for them during those wilderness years. But this feast was also intended to look forward to a time when God would pour His blessing on His people in a new way in the Messianic age. In other words, the feast was intended to point to Jesus. But in all of the festivities in Jerusalem, During the Feast of Tabernacles, the people missed the fact that the fulfillment of the feast was right in front of their face. Earlier at the Passover feast in John 5, verses 39 to 40, Jesus said to the Jews, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life And it is they, the Scriptures, that bear witness about Me, yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. So whether it's the Feast of Passover or here at the Feast of the Tabernacles, the very one that they are looking for, the very one the feast pointed to was right in front of them but they failed to see Him. They didn't believe. Not only did they not believe, most of them hated 
Jesus. They hate him so much that they want to kill him. The desire to kill Jesus permeates chapters 7 and 8. If you go back this afternoon and read through it, you will see at the beginning and at the end this plot for the religious leaders to kill Jesus. In the middle, the attempt to arrest him. It permeates the environment that Jesus is speaking into. We see it in the first nine verses of chapter 7. Draw your attention there. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. That's the setting. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you were doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. It's not only the religious leaders that don't believe in Jesus. Not even his own brothers believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. So when they try to get him to go to Jerusalem, I think it's as if they are mocking him. If you do these things, go ahead. Show yourself to the world. But Jesus has been showing himself to the world. The word show here in these verses is the same word used in John for the word shine. The light was shining in the darkness. Jesus was showing Himself. But as Dan taught us in the first sermon in this series from John 3, the people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Jesus says that the world hates the light because its works are evil. But notice who he's speaking to. This is very instructive for us. He's talking to the Jews that are gathered for a religious festival. He's not talking to pagan Gentiles. He's talking to the religious elite during his days. He's talking to the very people who were searching the Scriptures and looking for the Messiah. And now that He's right in front of their face, they're trying to kill Him because He is a threat to their autonomy. 
That's why he doesn't initially go up to the feast when they go up. But eventually, he does go up. And what he says at the feast makes it very clear that he is the fulfillment of all that the feast was pointing to. He's right in front of them. But many still do not believe. I'm not going to cover all of John 7 to 8. I simply have two goals this morning. I want to show you from these chapters that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles and hopefully to demonstrate why that matters for us. My second goal is to show you why so many people do not believe even when the Savior is right in front of them. This is a continuation of what we picked up on last week. But I also want to talk about in this second section what marks true believers from false believers. So let's begin with the fulfillment. My point is very simple. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus makes two remarkable statements in these chapters. He actually makes a number of remarkable statements that I'll draw your attention to, but the first two I want to draw your attention to um, is what I'm speaking of here. Two remarkable statements that really don't pop if you don't understand the cultural context of the passage. If you can't get the scene fixed in your mind. So please allow me to um, explain the context before we read these two remarkable statements. The Feast of Tabernacles was a seven-day feast. And on the seventh day, the festivities really ramped up. There were two things that happened on this seventh day. The first was a water-pouring ceremony. On the first six days, the priest would make one trip from the pool to the altar and pour out water at the base of the altar. But on the seventh day, they made many trips from the pool to the altar and they poured out water throughout the day. The second major thing that happened on this final day was a torch lighting ceremony. So these two ceremonies were meant to commemorate the way that God provided water from the rock in the wilderness and the way God led Israel in the wilderness through a pillar of fire. They also pointed forward, as I mentioned earlier, to a time when God would pour His Spirit out on His people. There were a number of passages that would have been read throughout this week, just like we have a number of passages we read during the Christmas time. They had a lectionary of sorts, passages that they read every year. One of the passages that they read on the very first day of the feast was Zechariah 14. This is what it says. There shall be a unique day, so it's looking to the future, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but in evening time there shall be light. On that day, living water shall flow from Jerusalem, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. 
That's one of the passages that they read at this feast looking forward. They would have also read passages from the Psalms and from Isaiah. Isaiah 44 verse 3 says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessings upon your descendants. I could continue, but you get the picture. This is the setting of the feast. They're looking back to the wilderness wanderings. They're looking forward to the Messianic age. They're pouring out water. They're lighting torches at the temple. And all of this is happening when Jesus is teaching there. He has visual aids, so to speak, all around Him as He is speaking. So when we get to chapter 7, verses 37 to 38, have this picture in your mind and listen to what Jesus says. On the last day of the feast, verse 37, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Everyone who believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The very next thing Jesus says is found in chapter 8, verse 12. Look there. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In our Bibles, it's difficult to see that this is the very next thing that Jesus says. And I wish I didn't have to do this, but I need to take a brief excursus here. It's really unfortunate that our translations insert the story of the woman caught in adultery here. Notice the note above it. It says this was not in the earliest manuscripts. In fact, it is a quite late edition. And it most certainly was not authentic to the Gospel of John and it most certainly does not belong here. So as we're reading this story, we miss something really important in the flow of John's Gospel. And that's why I pointed out in the original manuscript of John, the scene at the temple does not change between when Jesus says, from me will come living water, and when He says, I am the light of the world. He's still standing in the same place. Sure, John records various responses to Jesus after he talks about living water. Verses 40 to 52. But Jesus is still standing in the temple teaching and the next words out of His mouth after He says, Come to Me and drink is, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So, on the last day of the feast, Jesus is standing right in the place where they're pouring out water and lighting torches and He says, Come to Me if you're thirsty. Come to Me. Then He says, I am the light of the world. In other words, I am the fulfillment of all of these festivities. Of all that you are celebrating. Of all that you are anticipating. 
I am the fulfillment. I am here. Right in front of you. And notice the way that He fulfills the feast. He's not only providing for physical needs like water. He gives eternal life. From Him comes living water. In verse 39 of chapter 7, John tells us that this is a reference to Him giving the Holy Spirit. After He is crucified, after He is raised and ascends to the Father, the Holy Spirit will come. And He is promising that those who come to Him will receive that Holy Spirit. And the light that He gives in chapter 8, verse 12 is the light of life. So living water. The light of life. Jesus gives eternal life. But there's more. Look again at verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is a remarkable statement. When Israel's in the wilderness, who are they following? They're following Yahweh. In the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Jesus says, follow me and you will have the light of life. In effect, he's saying following God is following me. I give eternal life. I give the Spirit. New birth by the Spirit. This is explosive teaching. Explosive teaching. And it is the very thing that we need most. Later on in chapter 8, verse 21, Jesus says, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Then again in verse 24, He says, I told you that you would die in your sin for unless you believed that I am He, you will die in your sin. Jesus is the fulfillment of the feast and this is why it matters unless you believe in Jesus Christ that He is the Christ, that He is the Son of God, the One sent from God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, you will die in your sin, you will perish and be eternally separated from God. But if you believe in Him, If you follow Him, you will have eternal life. Later in verse 51, Jesus says, Anyone who keeps My Word, he will never see death. So if you don't believe, you will die in your sin. But if you do believe and you trust in Jesus' Word, you will never see death. This is not saying that you will never die physically. It is saying that you have eternal life. That you are born of God. Therefore, you will not perish eternally. Be separated from God. Jesus is the fulfillment of the feast. He's right there in front of them. The question is, what will they do with Him? Will they believe in Him? Or will they reject Him? And the question is, for us is the same. What will you 
do with Jesus. After Jesus' two statements, we read in verse 30 that many believed in Him. Many believed in Him. Then beginning in verse 31, Jesus addresses the Jews who had believed in Him. So His new converts. Here's His first lesson to them. And He concludes the first part of His teaching in verse 45 by saying, you do not believe in Me. So initially they say they believe, but as things progress, Jesus makes it clear to them that they don't, in fact, believe. And they'll agree with Him as things progress after that. Pastor Mike calls these people unsaved believers. We talked about people like this last week. And we pointed out then, and I will remind you now, that this not only describes the religious leaders in Jesus' day, it also describes many people in the church today who call themselves Christians, but who are not, in fact, born-again Christians. They may think that they are, but they are not. So how can we tell the difference? How can we tell the difference between true believers and false believers? This is the question that I want to spend the rest of our time on this morning. And I can't think of a much more important question. There is so much on the line. And this question does not simply apply to somebody else. That's the way we tend to think about questions like this, right? it is an opportunity for us to examine ourselves as well. It is so important. There's so much on the line. Life and death. So what is the difference between true believers and false believers? The dialogue that follows in verses 31 to 59 shows us the difference. As I've studied this, as I've read on this, I really see one major mark of true believers in these verses. But Jesus drives the point home in three ways. I think they're all saying essentially the same thing, but he drives it home in three ways. So I'm going to have three points here. First, true disciples abide in Jesus' words. Look at verses 31 to 32. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. There it is. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is a remarkable statement. Just think of the setting again. Think of the context. He's speaking to a group of Jews, religious leaders are present, who highly regard God's word in the law of Moses. Earlier in chapter 7, verse 19, he says, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Here he says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth. He's equating his words with the very words of God written 
in the Scriptures. Notice in verse 43, he says, you can't bear to hear my word. Now look at verse 47. He says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. His words equated with the very word of God. And the mark of a true disciple is someone who hears Jesus' words and abides in them. Who lives in them. Who heeds them. Who obeys them. Who cherishes them. Who observes them. Just like the Great Commission says. Do you abide in Jesus' words? Do you obey Him? If you love Me, He says, you will obey Me. Or do you simply give lip service to your profession of faith that Jesus is the Christ? Secondly, free people aren't slaves to sin. In verse 32, Jesus said, the truth will set you free. In verse 33, the Jews answer Him and say, we've never been enslaved to anyone. Just think of Israel's history. This is a little bit of an odd statement. They've clearly been enslaved to a lot of people. The Egyptians being one of them, which they're remembering during the Feast of Tabernacles. But I bet they probably meant that even though they have been oppressed and enslaved, they've never let their oppressors keep them from faithfulness to God, which again is not true. But Jesus doesn't quibble on this point. He goes on to make a much more important point in verses 34 to 36. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Another remarkable statement about who Jesus is. Using yet another reference to the Exodus. He says He saves people, frees them, from slavery, but not slavery to Pharaoh, slavery to sin. Jesus leads his people through a much greater exodus by his work on the cross, where he pays the penalty for people's sins. Like the Lamb of God, he bears the sins of the people and leads them not simply into the promised land, but into eternal life. Those who are sons of God have been set free from sin. They've been freed from the penalty of sins. Amen? But they have also been freed from the power of sin. That is not to say that if you are a true believer that you will no longer sin. You will. But Jesus is saying that you will no longer be enslaved by sin. You belong to a new master, to King Jesus. You are now governed by a new heart given to you by the Holy Spirit. That should be evidenced in your life. 
Are you a slave to sin? Again, I'm not saying, are you still sinning? But are you living as sons and daughters of God? Are you walking in step with the Spirit? Is there fruit in your life? Finally, children of God do the will of God. The Jews say that God is their Father, verse 41. But look at the way that Jesus responds to them in verses 42 to 47. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love Me. Oh. That's the heart of the matter. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of My own accord, but He sent Me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear My word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe in me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe in me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. These verses get to the crux of the issue. One of the reasons I've chosen chapter 7 all the way through 8 is I see a lot of things at the beginning of 7 that I see at the end of 8. I think they hold together. One of those is in chapter 7, verses 16 to 17. Jesus says something very similar there that he says here. He says, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking of my own authority. If one's desire, his will, is to do what God desires, what God wills, then you know the truth. You abide in the truth. But, back in chapter 8, verse 44, if your will is to do Satan's desires, you will not be able to even hear God's Word rightly. God so loves the world that He sends His Son as light into the world. But if you hate the light because you love darkness, you will never even be able to hear the Gospel rightly. As we follow John's Gospel, we see that it is only those who have been given a new heart by the Spirit who really want to do God's will, who are changed, and can therefore be receptive to the truth of the Gospel. Clearly, the Jews in this passage did not want to do God's will. Otherwise, they wouldn't be seeking to kill Jesus. 
That's pretty basic. They don't hear the truth. All they hear is lies about Jesus. Satan is a liar. Satan is a murderer. So since they are seeking to kill Jesus, they must be sons of Satan, not sons of God. Sons of God want to do the will of God. That doesn't mean that they will always do it perfectly, but they want to do the will of God. And the will of God is expressed in the words and in the life of Jesus Christ, in following Him, in abiding in His words. This really makes the Jews mad. And he's saying, Satan's your daddy, not God. To the religious leaders. And in the following verses, they are hot. Verse 48, they accuse Jesus of having a demon, which is ironic since he just called them sons of Satan. But what Jesus says in verses 49 to 59 will push them clean over the edge. Look at verse 51. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. This leads to a discussion about Abraham and the prophets, all of whom died. Look at verse 53. The Jews say, Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. And in verse 56, Jesus makes an audacious claim. He says, Your father Abraham, he rejoiced to see my day. He saw it through the eyes of faith. And he was glad. The Jews are indignant. They say, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Then Jesus drops the mic. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so they pick up stones to throw at him. This is the final straw. If they were listening before, they would have caught all of this implicitly. But now Jesus makes it very explicit. He is saying, I am God. I am the great I am. Another reference to the Exodus that they are celebrating at the Feast of Tabernacles. In Exodus 3, if you're not familiar, God appears to Moses, tells him to bring his people out of Egypt. And Moses says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Then God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am sent me to you. So when Jesus says to the Jews, before Abraham was, I am, he's saying that he is Yahweh. The great I am. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Word of God. John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.14 says, the Word became flesh and tabernacled. That's the literal phrase. Tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only God. Full of grace and truth. The I Am is right in front of them. 
the fulfillment of the feast in a way they could have never imagined, and they didn't see it. They didn't see Jesus for who he was, and they didn't see the reason why he had to come, which was to save his people from their sin. The question I want to ask you this morning is, do you see it? Do you see it? I don't want to be too harsh. I want to encourage you. But the repeated matter within the book of John is that he came to his own religious people and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become sons of God, children of God, who were born not of the will of man nor of the will of flesh, but born of God. Have you received him? Have you believed in his name? Have you been born of God? Then follow him. That's the application. Abide in his word now and all the way to the end of your life. Have you received him? If you've not, may I ask you a few concluding questions? Are you thirsty? Come to Him and He will give you living water. Are you living in the dark? Believe in Him and the light of life will shine upon you. Are you dead in your sins? Trust in Him and you shall never see death. Are you a slave to sin? Allow Him to free you, to redeem you from your slavery to sin from its penalty and its power. Christmas is a season to celebrate. It is a time to feast, but only for those who see it as a Christ feast. Only for those who see Jesus for who He is, the Son of God who took on flesh to deliver us from our sins. It is a celebration only for those who are truly His disciples. Would you pray with me? Father, give us eyes to see the majesty of Your Son in all of His splendor that He is the Son of God who took on flesh to ransom us. May we celebrate that. May we rejoice in that. We pray also for those who have not yet received Him and believed in His name that You would give them eyes to see. To see their great need for a Savior. And to see that Jesus is the Savior that they need. We ask this for the sake of your glory, for the good of your people, through the mercies of your Son. Amen.